If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners. Welcome back. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, I'm really excited to bring back one of my uh, favorite guests from the show, somebody that I've been following since probably day one when I, you know, interest got peaked in real estate investing years ago. And uh, I love following his economic content. A brief introduction for those of you who don't know him, although most of you who listen to the show probably do. He is uh, the former uh, host of the Bigger Pockets Business podcast. He wrote uh, several books. Uh, one of the most notable one is the book on flipping houses from Bigger Pockets, the book on estimating rehab costs from Bigger Pockets. Um, he also wrote the book on negotiating real estate, which I don't have a copy of because I listened to it on Audible. So I, I'll, I hope you gotta get you a copy. I know. I've, I've actually I've I've owned a copy before and I gave it away. So I. I buy Even copies. Better. I buy copies of books a lot and and hand them out at our meetups. And then my personal favorite, which I which I think is very, um, it's a great time to discuss it, is uh, recession proof real estate investing. So I actually uh, just ordered extra copies of these to give one to everybody in my office because I wanted my my team to uh, to understand the cycle, you know. And and Jay just does such a great job of outlining it. He uh, has a reputation for being the guy who flipped a ton of houses. He flipped 400 something houses uh, coming coming up. And then um, and I've, I'm always fond of quoting him because he, he said on our last interview that he regrets every house he ever sold. So um, I always I always bring that up in the conversation of, of, you know, why we we try and hold as much as we can. And then recently he is partnering with Ashley Wilson and Bar Down Investments. So he has joined the uh, the multifamily game and, and closing some really large projects there and making making a lot of splash in the in the large multifamily space. So uh, super excited to have you here, Jay. And thank you so much for joining us again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. So, uh, Jay, did, did how did my introduction uh, fare? Did you have anything else you wanted to add to the group from your from your past or, or from what you got going on today? No, I, I think you're way too generous. Um, I will say I do have a, a fifth book coming up through Bigger Pockets called Real Estate by the Numbers, um, which is all that. about all the math and finance that goes into underwriting and evaluating deals. Uh, so anybody out there that's doing deals would probably really like this book. So stay tuned and be on the lookout for that one. Now, is that, um, is that a multifamily focused or is nope. it a single family or is it, it is, all over? It's investing in general. So it's basically all of the math and finance and underwriting and, and um, numbers based topics uh, that are going to be uh, applicable to investors, real estate investors. So understanding things like time value of money, understanding metrics like um, what does IRR mean and what does AAR mean and what's cash on cash return and how do you underwrite a deal and, and those sorts of things. Basically anything that's numbers or finance related. Awesome. I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, that is something I think gets lost in the mix a lot. So um, I know you have a, a pretty strong numbers background and I have a, a finance background, but a lot of a lot of folks that come out here, they kind of get caught up in the the hype and in the, the social media and, and 
and and you know when you kind of drill them down there, there there's there's a little gap in understanding there so you know awesome that you're educating folks there appreciate it can you um like i said you know one of the main one of my favorite and i've, I've learned so much from you over the years from estimating rehab costs to you know a, a lot of other things but one of the topics that i, I love to he- read all like every word you post about is the economy um, can you give a rundown of, of just a current summary of where we're at, where you think we're going, where we where we came from, and and why you think where we're at, we are where we're at? Yeah, I, I mean, let's remember everything I say. We should take with a grain of salt because I, I think the last time I was on your show was uh, <laughs> back towards the beginning of COVID, and and I think everything I predicted, I think everything everybody predicted was wrong. Was wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I I can admit when I'm wrong, and and when it comes to economic topics, it's probably more times than I'm right. Um, so we're all basically just guessing. That's so funny you say that. I was telling somebody that the other day, and it wasn't just you, it was several other people, but people are always asking me for predictions. And I'm like, well, let me tell you this. Let me start by saying this. I have interviewed some of the smartest guys that I respect the most on these subjects, and they've given their predictions, and they've been incredibly wrong. And then I still consider them the smartest and admire them. So it's, it's, I always call it like a soft science. Like economics is like a soft science. It's like psychology. Like we generally understand like certain triggers cause certain things, but there's no, there's certainly no like definitive crystal balls. I, I like to say I don't make predictions, I make guesses. And there's probably a, a, a reasonable chance that my guess is a little bit better than some random person on the street. But that's that's about it. Um, yeah. And I mean, there's so many variables that go into economic stuff. I mean, again, we, we look back at COVID and we saw March of, of 2020, like the entire economy falling off a cliff. And, and I don't think there was a single person on the planet back then who would have predicted that within six to 12 <laughs> months, we'd see some of the largest asset bubbles that we, we've ever seen. Um, I think a lot of people might have predicted it was going to happen three, four, five, ten years down the road with all the money we were printing, but nobody thought that even before the lockdown and lockdowns ended, uh, that we'd see the stock market recover and 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 spike. Nobody, I think, expected that we'd see real estate go through the roof again, or we'd see Bitcoin go to whatever it was, eighty thousand. Um, I mean, that was just a crazy turnaround, and nobody could have predicted that. So again, anything I say here, let's take with a grain of salt because who knows what can happen? There's so many external forces that we have no control over, no insight into. Um, that we never really know. That said, the nice thing about the economy is we have a really good history of what's previously happened. Um, And in the case of the economy, uh, history does tend to repeat itself to a large degree. So over the last 160 years, um, we've seen 34 recessions. If you want to count basically what happened last week, the, the second quarter in a row of negative GDP. Uh, if you want to call that officially a recession, and we can discuss if it is or isn't, um, but that would make 35, I think, in the last 150 years. And so do the math. I mean, divide 160, 150, 160 years divided by 35 recessions. We see a recession every five years or so. Um, and so that surprises a lot of people. A lot of people think, well, I mean, they remember 2008 and then they remember the the 12 years between 2008 and 2020. And they think, okay, that's that's a long time, but that's how long we go between recessions. Maybe we even go longer. The reality is the time between 2008 and, 2000 and 2020 
that 12 years between those two recessions was literally the longest this country has ever seen between two recessions. It just so happens that 2008 was such a big catastrophic, uh, catastrophic event, and 2020 was such a big catastrophic event that we tend to think of recessions as these, these again, catastrophic events. Um, we think 2008, that's what a recession is, or COVID, that's what a recession is. Um, but the reality is most recessions are pretty mild compared to those. Most recessions are you have a, a spike in unemployment and yeah, people are suffering and it's not necessarily good, um, but we don't have real estate crashing and we don't have the stock market crashing and we don't have um, all these other asset classes kind of in the toilet. Um, we just have general economic turmoil and a, a downturn and sometimes it's worse than others. But in general, recession is is just like the, the, the next logical phase of the up and down cycle of the economy. And so moving forward, uh, while we very well could have a 2008 type event or we could have uh, drop off a cliff like we did it during COVID, uh, the more likely scenario is we see a more typical recession, the type of recession that we saw after 2001. So 9-11 um, put us kind of in a recession. If you couple that with like the tech bubble that we saw in the late 90s, um, and it wasn't fun. I mean, housing softened and a lot of people lost their jobs, but nobody remembers 2001 like they remember 2008. Um, likewise, in the early 90s or the late 80s or the early 80s or the mid 70s, I mean, there was there were lots of recessions over my lifetime. I'm 50 years old. Um, I'm an old guy, so I, I remember a lot of these, but they weren't 2008 type events. They were just more mild, like not fun economic times that within 12 to 18 months, things started to get better. Yeah. So what is your expectations around around interest rates and how that affects both single family and multifamily? Yeah, so obviously interest rates are up over the last uh, six months. Um, and interest rates, the federal funds rate, the thing that the, the Federal Reserve sets, that's gone up about two and a half points, three points over the last six months. And so that's kind of pushed mortgage rates, mortgage interest rates up. And that's obviously slowed down the real estate market. That's actually the whole point of raising interest rates. I mean, we've seen inflation over the last year and a half um, that's been really bad for this country. People are having trouble paying for housing. People are having trouble paying for food. People are having trouble paying for gas and everything else. And obviously the government doesn't want people to struggle like that. So what they need to do is they need to slow down the economy. They need to get people to stop spending as much because ultimately that's what's going to lower inflation. So how do they do that? Well, really there's two ways to kind of curb spending and, and get people to, uh, to, to spend less and, and lower inflation. Number one, they raise interest rates. When interest rates are higher, two things happen. One, um, people make more money in their savings accounts than they did when interest rates were lower, so they start saving more. And two, with higher interest rates, it costs more to buy a house because your mortgage is higher, costs more to buy a car, costs more to buy anything with a credit card if you don't pay it off. So people spend less money because it costs more to buy stuff. So between saving more and spending less, people spend less money. There's less money on the economy. And then the second thing that the, uh, the Fed can do um, is that they can kind of stop printing money. Like we do a lot of money printing during yeah. during bad times. They can do the opposite. They can actually pull money out of the economy. And when there's less money in the economy, there's less money for people to spend. And 
All of these things basically lead to less spending and slowing down the economy, which reverses inflation. And so that's why the, the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, because they want to slow down inflation. And so, um, so yeah, so this thing that we're seeing now with, with, uh, with mortgage rates going up and single-family housing dropping a little bit, and I apologize, obviously, as soon as we jump on this podcast, I have my land, excuse me, I have my landscapers in the back. Cutting it, it, the lawn, never, so. it never fails. Yeah. <laughs> so I apologize for that. Um, but so, so yeah, it's kind of by design that we want things to slow down because that's ultimately what reduces inflation. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing that we're seeing all of this happening. It's a good thing that we're seeing all of this slow down because mm-hmm. over the next several months, the hope is that we see inflation drop. Now, when we see inflation drop, that generally means the economy isn't doing too well. And when the economy is not doing too well, we find ourselves in a recession. And so just like the government and the Federal Reserve doesn't like to see prices spiking and and people not being able to afford stuff, they also don't like recessions where people are losing their jobs and, and don't have enough money to pay for things. So what they'll do is once inflation is down and we're most likely in a recession, what the Fed's going to do is they're going to just do just the opposite. They're going to drop interest rates. And dropping interest rates has historically had the opposite effect. You get less money saving because interest rates are lower, so you get less money in your, your savings account. And things cost less to buy. Houses are cheaper and cars are cheaper and credit cards are cheaper. So when inflation comes down, the Fed's going to drop interest rates. Everybody's going to have more money to spend. Everybody's going to, basically, the economy is going to recover. And so typically, um, over the last 60 or 70 years, we've had 10 cycles of interest rates going up, inflation coming down, a recession starting, the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates, and then the economy improving. So 10 times that's happened in the last 70 years. Every time we've, we've started raising interest rates, that's been the cycle. Raise interest rates, inflation lowers. We go into a recession, Fed lowers interest rates, we come out of the recession. That pattern typically takes between 18 and 24 months. So if you want to think that we started raising interest rates, what was it, six months ago? We're probably within 12 to 18 months of the Federal Reserve getting into the next phase where they start lowering interest rates. So I think we're within a year and a half or two years from basically getting back on track and things being where they were, maybe not as crazy hot as they were, maybe not as much inflation as there was. But I think we we have about a year and a half to two years before the economy is back on track um, and everybody is like feeling really good again. Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, you're a big uh, Ray Dalio fan, right? Mm, absolutely. So, and what you just described sounds like the short-term debt cycle is what he, what he calls it. Yep. Can you, something that I've always kind of uh, conceptually had a hard time grappling with is the long-term debt cycle. Can you elaborate a little bit on the long-term debt cycle, um, how that works, what causes it, and, and where we are in that process? See, now you're asking the hard questions. Um, I, I thought I could just keep this light and simple, but now you're going to make me actually uh, uh, justify some of the things I just said. Um, okay, so um, I talked about the fact, and again, this is Ray, Ray Dalio has explained this tremendously well. He's got a video out there um, called like the economic cycle in, in 30, minutes. 30 minutes or something. Yeah. It's a YouTube video. I recommend everybody go watch it. Um, but basically, I just talked about that that up and down cycle of the economy where, where we have recessions every five, six years for the last decade, uh, 
century and a half. Um, and so we typically refer to that five or six year cycle as the short-term debt cycle. And the reason why we refer to it as the debt cycle is because what we typically see is over four, five, six, and between 2008 and 2020, 12 years, um, what we see is that there's a lot of credit created. People take out mortgages, people buy cars, people take out uh, credit on their credit cards and other things. And we basically create this inflated uh, amount of debt in the economy. And while the economy is doing well, there's nothing wrong with having a bunch of debt. People are making a lot of money, their, their wages are going up, their jobs are going well, unemployment is low. Um, but then when we get towards the, um, the, um, the recession, what happens is people can't pay all that debt. We've opened up all this credit, we've taken out all these loans, um, but then we get into a recession and there's trillions upon trillions of dollars, 10, 12, 15 trillion dollars in consumer debt. People can't pay that because they're losing their jobs and inflation's really bad um, and the bubble bursts. And that's when we start seeing foreclosures and repossessions of cars and people um, going into bankruptcy because they can't pay their, their credit cards. And so that's why they call it the debt cycle, because during good times, we, we open up all this debt and credit um, and then everything crashes down during the recession and people lose everything. And then we kind of start over. Well, that's the theory. But the reality is that during each of these cycles, um, during the crash, we don't lose as much debt as and credit that, that we opened previously. So we had this cycle of up and down, but we're always kind of going up. So each cycle, we see a little bit more credit than the last time, a little bit more debt than the last time that didn't get destroyed during the recession. Um, and eventually, um, the short-term cycles result in still enough debt and enough credit being available uh, that there's a really big crash. And Ray Dalio talks about this as the long-term debt cycle, where every 75 to 90 years, we see this really big, big, big crash, where all that, all those small debt cycles that built up all, all this credit mm -hmm. come crashing down, and we basically end up like back where we were 75 or 90 years ago with respect to, to credit and debt. And so in, in Ray Dalio's opinion, the last time that happened was around the Great Depression. Um, so mm. let's call it 1930. And so if you talk about like 75 to 90 years after the Great Depression, we're looking at somewhere around 2008 or 2020, somewhere where we were, where we are. Um, and so there are a lot of people who thought that the 2008 Great Recession um, was an example of this long-term debt cycle and what, what Ray Dalio calls uh, a deleveraging. Deleveraging, um, yeah. Where basically, instead of these small recessions, we have this once-in-a-century big recession. And so there's some disagreement over whether 2008 was that big event or was a partial of that big event um, or was not that big event at all. Um, then there are people who think that um, regardless of 2008, where we are now, we're in, in for that big deleveraging event. Problem is that with anything economics, you really don't know what happened until after it's done and you go back and you do a postmortem and you kind of look. And so we can look at 2008 and we can say, yeah, there was a big deleveraging, but it kind of reversed itself quickly. So, so yeah. On the other end of that argument there, is there not, is there not some theory around what should have been our deleveraging, but we refused to take our medicine and we printed money, printed our way mm -hmm. out of it. And, and Absolutely. all we really did was kick the buck, the can down the road. 
Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing. And that's why writing the recession proof real estate investing book was tough because you, you want to be able to write a book. I'm an engineer. Um, I was a physics major for a long time and, and you want to write a book that follows like laws of physics or engineering sure. where, where like absolute values. Absolute. Yeah. yeah. Nobody can, nobody can change the laws. Um, but the reality is in economics, there are things we can do to kind of change the, the laws and change the rules. And one of those is, is what we've seen a lot since 2008, which has been all of this printing of money. So after 2008, the, the, the government printed about $4 trillion. After 2020, the government printed about $8 trillion. Um, in that time, we've kind of only pulled like a half a trillion or a trillion out. So we've got like $10, $11, $12 trillion more in the economy than we did in 2008. And so, yeah, you can argue that there was this big deleveraging event. Um, but by printing all of this money, we kind of undid all of that. Um, and so basically we were propping up this economy on all this, not, I don't want to call it fake money, um, but all this inflated money, all of this money that's, that's kind of lowered the value of the dollar because we printed so much of it. Um, and that's the thing that's keeping everything going. And the question is, well, there are a couple of questions. One, there's, um, can we keep printing money? And two, will we keep printing money? Do we have the appetite to keep printing money? Um, and the answer there is, well, I'll answer the second question first. I think the, the, the Federal Reserve and the government very much does have, have the appetite to keep printing money um, because nobody wants to, I don't think there's any president out there past, current, or future that wants to be the, the guy or gal that, uh, that's the one that says, okay, I'm going to let everything collapse. So, yeah, I think we'll keep printing money. So, um, Harris, but, you know, you, nobody wants to be the president that lost Vietnam. So we, it, exactly. It and, and let me tell you something. This will be the president that could potentially lose the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, um, which in many ways is going to be much, much worse than Vietnam. Um, mm. It basically takes uh, the U.S. from being the preeminent superpower in the world. Um, I mean, everybody thinks of a superpower as the, the countries with the strongest militaries. Um, but in reality, the strongest superpowers over the last hundreds of years have been the ones that have controlled the currency. And right now, the U.S. is kind of that superpower that controls the currency. So regardless of the military, um, currency is, is in many ways even more, um, more uh, powerful than, than weapons. So, um, so, yeah, so answering that second question, I think we definitely... Um, are going to see continued appetite to keep printing money and to keep like pushing the envelope on on um, on money printing. But then the the first question was how long can we do it until something really bad happens? And that's the thing that nobody really agrees on. There's there's sure. traditional no, economists. Okay. What is what does really bad look like? Like what it, how does that situation climax to? So what really bad looks like is so. In theory, we can print all the money we want. The problem is when we print money, the way we actually turn it into money is that somebody somebody gives us something in return for it. Um, so if we print trillions of dollars, um, we basically have to create securities um, around that trillions of dollars we printed. We have to pay interest on that money that we're printing. We can't just kind of print it and put it out there. Somebody needs to actually do something with it. So for every dollar we print, um, somebody's buying a treasury bond or a treasury bill, um, and we're paying them interest. And them is in often cases other governments, China or sure. or uh, Japan, um, buying up a lot of our currency, and we're paying them interest. And so the more money we print, the more interest we have to pay. And at some point, 
we don't have enough money to pay our interest, so we have to print money just to pay the interest. And that snowballs. And one day we can get to the point where literally we're, pay, we're, we're printing money to pay interest on the interest on the interest um, of all the money we've printed in the past. And things just get to the point where we can't print any more money and things collapse. Um, I, I lived in uh, Caracas, Venezuela in the late 90s. Yeah. And when I moved there in 1998, uh, a Bolivares, their currency was, was, it was 500 Bolivares was equal to $1. When I left 24 months later, it was 1,900 Bolivares was equal to $1. They yep. printed at such a rate that their, 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 like a, you know, their currency was a fourth as valuable 24 months later. Yep. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, imagine like you don't want to pay your credit card bill this month um, and the credit card lets you use your credit card to pay the bill. So you yeah. have a thousand dollar bill and with interest, it's now 1100 and your, your, your credit card company says, okay, we'll let you pay the bill with your credit card. So you pay that hundred dollars interest um, with your credit card. Now your bill is 1200. So next month, your, your interest is $120. So you pay that with your credit card. And so now you owe 13 and change. And now it's 150 the next month. Yeah. And eventually, basically, um, you're, you're paying more in interest than you are on what you originally borrowed on your credit card. And that's essentially what the, the U.S. government's doing. Um, and, and eventually, you just can't borrow enough or print enough to keep paying that debt. Um, and something's got to give. So I've got one more economic question before we, you know, I, I do want to talk a little bit about real estate with you. Um, the, and so you're typically pretty politically agnostic in, in, in public for sure. And I don't, I, I hate them all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Same. And, and so, but my question is because a lot of the political rhetoric on either side, they like to point fingers at the other guy for this and that. And a lot of times that it, this doesn't have anything to do with that, you know? And so we know the Fed has a lot of control on these major economic triggers, the money printing, uh, the, the price of fuel, all these different things. How much does the Fed control? How much does the legislative branch control and how much does the executive branch control and how do they interact with one another to, to make? I mean, and so does the political does really the the political party in power? What, what control do they have on these different metrics? Okay, you're asking questions above my pay grade. So let me let me talk let me talk in theory first. In theory, the Federal Reserve is an independent, non-political organization. Um, they're tasked with two things. They're tasked with um, controlling inflation and and full employment. So basically, those are those are their two mandates: keep inflation under control. Um, and when I say under control, not zero. We don't want zero inflation. We actually like a little bit of inflation because our economy growing, inflation is, is basically the economy growing. Our economy growing is good for a lot of things. Um, so number one is they have this mandate to kind of keep inflation at, at whatever they think is is the right number. And for a long time, they said 2%. Now they're saying um, a little more than 2%, so averaging 2% long-term, whatever that number is. So that's number one. And then number two is keeping full employment. And by full employment, we typically mean like three and a half, four percent 4% unemployment. Um, that's kind of what we call full employment. So the Fed's job is to do those two things. And they're supposed to be doing that um, apolitically or nonpartisanly. Um, and they're not supposed to be taking direction from, from the executive branch or from the legislature. Um, and I think they did a pretty good job of that up until around 2008. 
um, around 2008. I, it's hard to tell how much the president has control over that. Um, it certainly Obama didn't seem to publicly pressure um, the Fed, um, but that doesn't mean there wasn't stuff going on behind the scenes. It seems unlikely that there wasn't stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, Trump was probably the first president that openly prodded the Fed. I mean, he would tweet out like what he thought the Fed should do. And so I'm not certainly not saying he's the first person that kind of got involved in that, but he's certainly the first person that got involved in that publicly. Um, and now we certainly have the, the White House now under Biden um, that's kind of trying to, to muddy the waters with what's going on in the economy by putting out maybe not incorrect press releases on what a recession <laughs> is. Um, but but certainly looking to rock the boat and and cause um, this 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 rift um, this partisan rift by doing it. So um, so again, I'm not a fan of, of any of the administrations going back 20 years. I thought economically, I'll I'll take uh, Clinton any day. Um, I thought economically he did a good job. I thought Reagan did a good job uh, economically. Uh, Bush did a good job, the, the one between Reagan and, and Clinton. Sure. But any, anything after about 2000, um, I can find a lot of faults. Um, so uh, it, it's hard to say. I mean, again, in theory, the Fed should be politically agnostic and they should be doing what's best for the country. Um, but we're in, in very divisive political times. And, and certainly it seems like the, the uh, recent administrations have a huge vested interest in ensuring that the, uh, that the economy keeps kind of chugging along. And so you have to assume that there's, there's a good bit of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. Um, then from a legislative standpoint, um, doesn't seem like, like uh, Congress has a lot of say in, in monetary policy, but they have a lot of say in fiscal policy. They, they define like the tax laws and, and while um, those don't necessarily drive the economy quickly the way the Fed does by printing money and raising and lowering interest rates, anytime you control taxes and, and, and who's paying and how much and when, um, you're controlling the economy. And so, so certainly the legislature is, is doing their best to kind of control the economy as well. Um, and so I think the, the ultimate result is that, um, that we have an economy that recently has been relatively strong, but it hasn't been relatively strong for everybody. Um, for mm -hmm. some people, those that are well-to-do, it's been extremely strong. Um, the rich have gotten richer. I mean, I, I read something like during COVID, we were creating a new billionaire every seven minutes or something. And I don't, don't, don't fact check me on that or, or maybe fact check me on that. I don't know if that's true, but I read that. Um, and so certainly those who are well-to-do have benefited a lot by what's happened in the economy over the past two, five, 12, 15 years. Um, on the other side of the coin, those who are kind of not as well-to-do um, have suffered a lot. Um, and certainly we're seeing inflation eat away at real wages. So people are making less money in, in, in inflation terms, in real terms. Um, and people are, are struggled through COVID. And, and so, I mean, we had a lot of stimulus money, but that money all flowed into to assets, which eventually are going to help the rich. And so that, that's kind of been the interesting thing that we've seen. We, we talk about is the economy good or bad? Um, and the, I think the reason why we have so many arguments about that 
is because it really depends on your perspective. If you're wealthy, yeah, the economy has been fantastic for the last couple of years. Uh, if you're not wealthy, the economy has probably been a whole lot less than fantastic over the last couple of years. And so we're having two different conversations, but, but people can't see it from the other side. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's dive into real estate for a minute. Um, just real quick, you still do some single family stuff, right? I want to say not too long ago, I saw you flipping a house on Facebook or something. Yeah. So I think that was the last house. Um, I've been working on that one since like pre-COVID or beginning of COVID. Um, that was the last house I kind of flipped on my own. Um, and it took me two plus years and, and oh. it frustrated the hell out of me. And so I'm still doing some single family with, um, with a couple of partners where I'm more completely passive. I put in some money and I do some consulting. Um, but day to day, I'm doing essentially no single family anymore other than some rentals, not doing any flipping right now. Okay, cool. And so what is your, what is your, how has your strategy been impacted by the changing economic environment on the multifamily side? I get a lot of pushback about, you know, what if interest rates shoot up? Are you buying rate caps? Are you underwriting differently? How are you, how are you protecting your investors not knowing what's coming? Yeah, so I literally got into multifamily back in 2018-ish um, because I wrote that book, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. And while I was writing the book, um, I was kind of using that time to kind of think about what asset classes I wanted to be in because I believe that we were heading towards a recession in the 2019 timeframe, obviously. We got there in 2020 for reasons I completely two didn't weeks. expect. <laughs> yeah, for about two weeks, exactly. Um, so it didn't play out the way I expected it to. But back in 2018, when I was writing that book, I was thinking about um, a recession coming and where I wanted to be when that recession came. And ultimately, I determined that multifamily was probably one of the most resilient um, asset classes, at least within real estate, um, maybe even overall, um, to be in during a recessionary period. Yes, we, we certainly are going to see higher interest rates, and that's not going to be good for multifamily. Um, we may see higher unemployment, which isn't necessarily good for multifamily. Um, but all things being equal, um, those things are going to hurt other asset classes more than, than they're likely to hurt multifamily. I've heard contrarian arguments on those two subjects yeah. with raising interest rates creates a higher barrier of entry to home ownership, right? Which means they got to rent longer and then unemployment or, you know, bump down employment, you know, you, you lose your big fancy house and you got to move into an apartment. Yeah. And so a lot of it has to do with like what class of multifamily we're talking about. And, and so there's niches within niches. Um, so certainly um, I don't want to be in a class multifamily. Um, because A-class tends to be um, high-level white-collar uh, workers who um, are paying premiums for the highest-level amenities and the newest apartments. Um, and any time that you have a, a recessionary period, um, while the, the white-collar workers might be the most insulated, they're still going to take a hit. Um, and so certainly A-class um, has some, some risks associated with it. Um, these days, C-class property has some, some risks associated with it. Again, we were talking about, um, I didn't use the term K-shaped uh, economy, but we, we have this idea of the rich are kind of getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Um, and so um, certainly the, those, um, those on the lower end of the uh, socioeconomic spectrum um, that live in the C-class and maybe even the D-class housing 
um, they could get hit extra hard during this upcoming recession. And, and so that could be a bad place to be for multifamily. Um, but yeah, like, like you pointed out, there are certain classes of, of multifamily. And I think B class is, is kind of the perfect example of where, again, both interest rates, uh, interest rate hikes and unemployment is actually a good thing, like you said. Um, so I, I, again, it really goes back to really divvying up what we're talking about in multifamily. So I, yeah, I really like B-class multifamily. And that's kind of where I'm focused these days. Um, yes. So as somebody who buys multifamily, interest rates do tend to hurt us in the sense that it makes it harder for us to provide attractive returns to investors. Um, over the last several years, we've seen interest rates really, really low, which means um, we're not spending as much money on on debt service, on our mortgage. And so there's a lot of money left over every month to be paying our, our investors cash flow. Now that we're paying several points higher in, in, in mortgage interest every month, um, there's not as much money left over. And so our investors are seeing much less cash flow. That said, they still, they're not going to get high cash flow in most asset classes these days. Um, and so the question really becomes not so much what does the cash flow look like this month or next month or the following month, um, but what is the, the prospects for the asset itself over the next two years or five years or 10 years? Um, and I think, like I said, I expect interest rates to be down again in the next year and a half, two years. Um, and I think values for multifamily will, will shoot back up. And so while, yeah, I think our investors are, are struggling through lower cash flow for the next year or two, and we're struggling through lower cash flow for the next year or two, um, I think ultimately um, uh, multifamily is in a, a really good spot to continue to thrive, to continue to see high occupancy, to continue to see rent growth. I mean, anytime you have inflation, you're going to have rent growth. Um, and so uh, it's, I, I think, over two, three, five years, uh, multifamily is going to do really well. Yeah. Can you give us a breakdown of kind of like your deal structure, your whole time, your business plan, your splits, yep. kind of how you put them together? Yeah. Um, so so we, we do syndication, um, which basically is just a way of financially structuring your, your, um, your investment. And, and syndication is basically just this idea that if somebody that comes in that operates the deal, and then they bring in a whole bunch of completely passive partners to put a bunch of money into the deal. The passive partners, um, they get returns, um, but they don't have any day-to-day -day say. So it's like putting your money into the stock market. You get returns back, but you don't actually do anything. Um, and so we, we structure our deals. We're the operators. Um, we have passive investors. We actually are also passive investors in our own deals. Um, and so our deals, we typically look for um, we look in areas that are seeing population growth, that are seeing employment growth, that are seeing employment diversity, um, because, uh, again, when we're talking about multifamily, we're talking two, three, five, 10 year deals. Um, and the biggest driver of income and success over three, five or 10 years is going to be population growth and employment growth. People move to places where there are jobs and where people are moving. That's where multifamily is going to do well. So we look for those types of areas. Typical deal is a B-class uh, deal. Um, we're typically looking 150 units and above, built between 1980 and 2010. Our hold time is generally three to five years. Um, and these days, returns for multifamily investors, passive investors in the multifamily deals, we're seeing around 6% per year cash flow. Um, and we're seeing around 14, 15, 16% maybe uh, total returns on the back end. 
in terms so of IRR? IRR 14, 15, 16%, average annual return 16 to 20%. So depending on how you do the math. And again, I have a book coming out that talks all about that math. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to be giving away a lot of copies of that book because I'm <laughs> constantly breaking down the difference. Well, you, you said yours deal says it's a 15% IRR, but that guy said he'd give me 17% a year. I'm like, well, it's not, it's, that's an average annual rate. This is an internal rate. And here's you the advertise to your investors. For- uh, so it's funny. Um, I've seen things change a lot over the last couple months in last year. I think as returns have gone down because interest rates have gone up, um, we've started to see investors who we, we have these two common rates of return. We have this IRR, which is a compounded rate of return. That, that assumes that every time we give you a dollar back, like in cash flow or whatever it is, you reinvest that money. So it grows faster. Um, and then there's the average annual return, which assumes that um, at the end of the deal, you have this big pot of cash back, no matter when you receive, actually received it, and you divide that total return by the number of years and you have your average return. And so that's why we see these two different numbers and, and there's some nuances to both. Um, but typically speaking, IRR tends to be lower than average annual return. And so um, previously we could use IRR kind of as that metric. So 14, 15, 16%. But now that IRRs are dropping down, people are starting to quote that higher. Right, right. Now they're they're, now they're quoting 14, 15, 16%, but that's the AAR. And so I think a lot of investors who aren't savvy and don't know the numbers, um, they see, oh, this deal is just as good this year as it was last year. And what they don't realize was that 15% number that they're seeing this year um, is a different number than the 15% number they were seeing last year. Um, so the math is different, and, but they don't realize that. And so um, I, I'm starting definitely to, to see that. And then there are games that, that we as operators can play. And, and, um, and so... Uh, one of the big things I've seen is for IRR, again, this is a compounded return. So it assumes that you're reinvesting the money that you get back. And because you're reinvesting the money that you get back, or it assumes you're reinvesting the money you get back, the sooner you get money, the faster you can reinvest it and the faster it grows, this idea of time value of money. Um, sure. So if we, I offer you... A- we do an early refinance and and model that out about reinvesting that capital. And you got hockey stick growth at that You point. got hockey stick IRR. Likewise, something as stupid or not stupid, but as simple as if I pay, if you and I have the exact same deal and you're paying quarterly returns and I'm paying the exact amount of returns, but I'm doing it on a monthly basis. So instead of giving back $900 or, or let's say sure. yeah, uh, $900 in a quarter, you do it at the end of the quarter, I do 300 a month. So we're giving back the exact same thing, but I'm doing it monthly because you're getting my money back a little bit faster than they're getting your money back it actually bumps the IRR up. So we could have the exact same deal, but if I pay monthly and you pay quarterly, even though the investor isn't going to necessarily do anything different with the money they get back, my deal is going to look better than yours, even though it's the exact same deal. So there are lots of tricks that can be played as well. Yeah. So we, what I'll do with a less sophisticated investor is, is I'll, I'll start with the equity multiple and work my way backwards. Right. I'm like, well, here's the deal. You're going to double your money. Now you can look at it. It, it it could either be a 20%, you know, if you double your money over five years, it could either be a 20% average annual rate of return, or it could be a 15% IRR, you know, so don't get confused about it. What's going to really happen here is you're going to double your money over five years. Now, 
the the early refi. So I now, now keep in mind, I see some operators now that are saying we're doing a two x multiple, but they don't say five years. They don't give yeah. a time frame. Yeah, and so they might be thinking seven years. And so getting your money back, doubling your money in seven years, obviously isn't as good as five years. It isn't. So a lot of our projects will do, we'll model it for seven years, but we'll model in a, a, a refi at like 18 to 36 months. Yep. And and we've got we've got a project right now where we're returning 100% of investor capital from 18 months ago. And every single one of it is pouring pouring that money back into a project that we're, work, we're, put, we're closing on next month. And so what's going on there is that same hundred grand is now working for you in this deal and this deal. And that's, that's, you know, as long as we have another deal lined up for you to reinvest that capital, when we give you an early refinance, I mean, that's, you're, you're really doing good stuff there when you got your money working for you in multiple places at the same time. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and that's the, I, I, I like to tell everybody that's investing in these deals. Um, it's worth taking some time to really understand um, the numbers behind the deals and where those numbers are coming from and, and, and what's actually happening with your, with your money. Um, because again, um, I, I think you and I certainly do the right thing by our investors and, and they're always like focused on, on being upfront, but there are a lot of new and not even new. There are plenty of syndicators out there, um, that can kind of obfuscate the, uh, the, the returns by using weird metrics or, or, not disclosing things. And so it's, it's, you, you never, you, if you don't understand the math yourself, it, it's really easy to be deceived in this business. For sure. Well, I could talk all day, but I, I know that you probably, you're going to want to cut me off at the hour. So I want to move over to our radio round in the sake of time. Um, and I imagine you probably don't remember your answers from two years ago. So, I uh, don't. and they've probably changed whenever I, whenever, whenever somebody asks me what my favorite book is, it's usually the book I'm reading. But um, so the, it's just three quick questions. So the first one is, what's your favorite book? Uh, I, I can probably guess the book I said two years ago, because I've been saying the same book for like the last 10 years. There's a book called The Goal um, and nobody's ever heard of it, but it, it's 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 an amazing book. So I'll, I'll, I'll let's pretend that that was the one that I gave. So let me give you another one this year. Um, let me look at my bookshelf right now and see what I'm reading right now. So a, a book that I'm, I've just finished that I really loved is a book called Who Not How. Yeah. Um, and it's basically all about um, stop focusing on how you can do things better in your business and, and more efficiently in your business and how instead you can bring in people in your business to do things for you so you can scale that way. Um, and what I found going from single family to multifamily over the last few years is it really is about being able to scale your time um, in order to scale your business. Uh, multifamily is a team sport. And if you try and do everything yourself, you're not going to accomplish anything. Um, and bring, bringing in the right people in the right positions is, is definitely the way to, to scale the business and ensure that, uh, that everything's being done optimally. Yeah. I, um, I, I love that book. It's, it's Cal Newport, right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, no, uh, not Cal Newport. No. Uh, it is, um, not I can't see it from here. Um, now, that was deep work. That was Cal Newport. What was the other one? Um, it is, um, bring it up with Amazon, Dan Sullivan and Dan Benjamin Sullivan. Hardy. That's yep. right. Um, no, that, that's, that's so true. In the first, you know, year and a half, I tried to make the transition from single family to large multifamily. That, that was, I think, you know, I started, I started trying to make that transition in 2019. We didn't get our first project and, you know, 
we didn't close in our first large project until the beginning of 2021. And it's because the first year and a half, I was trying to do it all myself. And, and now, now that I, now that I look at my team and my partners and who does what, I don't really have any desire to do what they do. Yep. You know, we, we've all, we've kind of, there's four of us that work together. We've really niched down in what we enjoy doing. I've got, I've got partners that are the best underwriters I, I've ever met, you know, work for Starmont for years and, and other private equity firms. And they're just fantastic underwriters, but they, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't dare be on this show right now. Right. Um, and I've got other partners that are just way more organized than me with their follow-up with the lenders, with the property managers, with the construction crews from an operation standpoint, you know, I've got other ones that are just, as I'm building investor relations, they're building broker relations. So once we, once we niche down and like, you know, triple down on what our core competencies was versus trying to do everything ourselves, it really started to take off. Um, the next question is what's your favorite quote? Ooh, um, that's a tough one. Um, one that I've been thinking about a lot recently is, um, uh, it's something that goes along the lines of, of how you do something is how you do everything. Um, and it's, it's really, um, it, it's a testament to consistency. Um, and, um, I, I kind of, I, I do this when we hire. Um, a lot of times I will ask questions around how, um, potential candidates do relatively mundane things. Um, because how you do the simple and the mundane is, is pretty much going to reflect how you focus on the most important and big things that you do in your life. Um, and so I'm certainly an 80, 20 rule kind of guy. So like, I don't, I'm, I'm not like trying to be perfectionist on anything. Um, but, um, if, if you kind of aren't paying attention to the details on the little stuff, you're probably not paying attention to the details on the big stuff either. Absolutely. Awesome. And then what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Um, family. Um, and I'm guessing that's the same answer I gave last time, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick with it. Uh, if I need to give another one, I can probably find another one, but certainly yeah. I have, I have two boys, 11 and 12. We just got a new puppy yeah. and, and I'm, I'm starting to recognize. I'm about a decade behind you. I've got a, a three and a two. Let two me boys. tell you something. <laughs> Everybody says it. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard a million times. It goes fast. Um, and you think you have 18 years. And so you're like, okay, you're, you're probably thinking, okay, I've got 14 or 15 more years with them. Yeah. Once they get to around 10, 11, 12, what I'm finding is that they're, they're, they're not too interested in hanging out with mom and dad too much anymore. So we need to take every moment we can get because I have a feeling in a year or two, they're going to be completely done with us. Oh man. I got on, I got on this, I got on this kind of, I was interviewing Brandon Turner a few weeks ago. We got on this topic and both of us at the end were like, all right, I got to go. We got to go hang out with our kids. <laughs> well, Jay, how can I, how can our listeners uh, get in touch with you, learn more about you, invest with you, buy your new book, um, follow you? What, what's the, what's the best way you're, you're linking up with people these days? I appreciate that. So uh, easiest is probably go to www.connectwithjscott, just the letter J, scott.com, connectwithjscott.com. Um, and that'll link you out to anything. That's my my Linktree account. Um, and then I have links on there to everything I do. Awesome. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us. I, I learned a ton. I really loved it. I know our listeners are going to learn a ton. And as always, we appreciate you and uh, we'll definitely uh, keep following you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. Looking forward to next time. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. 
If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.